before going into this, I had never solved the nonogram. <gasps> the height of scandal. <laughs> Only on Talking Simulator. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the stylish, puzzle-solving, murder mystery visual novel, Murder by Numbers, with my guest, Liz Wright. My name is Liz Wright, and I was the lead programmer for the puzzle detective game, Murder by Numbers. In Murder by Numbers, you play as a 1990s television actor turned rookie detective called Honor, solving mysteries by talking to a cast of colourful characters and looking for clues, which are frequently discovered by solving grid-based puzzles, often called nonograms or picross. There's a lot going on here, so I wanted to talk to the person who put it all together, constructing the framework that would hold all of these disparate parts, the script, the character art, the puzzles... In this conversation, Liz explains how she built a nonogram solver, reveals what she would change if there was a sequel, and talks about what it's like to move from working on the tools that support game development to working on an actual game and back again. When we recorded this interview, Liz had left Murder by Numbers developer Mediatonic and was just about to start her new job as a programmer at No More Robots. But you can tell... She had a blast working on this game. For people who haven't played it, as wild as that is that there are people out there who haven't played it, how would you describe Murder by Numbers? Like, how do you explain it to friends and relatives who don't play games? <laughs> to, to those who don't play games. So Murder by Numbers is kind of like a visual novel storybook style game set in like a camp 90s crime drama <laughs> where you play as this actress who's kind of turning rookie detective and is solving cases with her like fun robot sidekick called Scouts. And sprinkled in with the narrative, you are looking for like certain items to help progress and you decipher what those items are by solving puzzles. That's a great succinct description and definitely kind of highlights how it's not really like any other game out there. Yeah, I think I remember having the initial idea kind of like described and pitched to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, why hasn't this been done before? <laughs> <laughs> so you've said before that you leapt at the chance to work on Murder by Numbers. What was it about the game that interested you? So for me, I guess I sort of jumped it for two pretty big reasons. It kind of had like smaller indie vibes to me, despite the fact that we were a decent sized studio. And I never thought I would be able to have that opportunity. And it just kind of had such a quirky setting to it. And I'm like, oh, I'm so interested to see how the story could play out. It felt really exciting. I was just kind of completely on board from that point of view. But also the work I was doing beforehand, I wasn't actually working on a games team. I was sort of working on a core tools tech kind of team. And I'd always wanted to work on a game. <laughs> And so in terms of just it being like career progression or moving into an area that I want to focus more on, it was like a dream come true, like a perfect scenario. It's interesting what you say about wanting to move from working on tools and tech to working on, on actual games, because I often wonder if the games industry struggles to find people who want to work on the stuff that doesn't get talked about as much, because I feel like people who are character artists of the characters that you've played in games or people who have designed levels that you've played, outsiders get much more excited about that than they do about people who make the tools that help the games to run. Do you 
find that that's the case? Or do you think there are loads of people out there who want to move the other way, who want to move from games to making tools and tech? I think there is definitely uh, kind of a struggle to get people into, say, the tool side of things. And I mention this because when I initially took my job, they didn't mention tools or the central team at all. <laughs> um, that was that was a wonderful surprise on day one. <laughs> but I did join Mediatonic basically straight out of university. And so I was very excited to be working for this particular company. I was also just kind of hyped to get a job at this point. So yeah, I was kind of happy to jump onto basically whatever they offered at that point. But yeah, it wasn't necessarily the role I thought it was going to be. Can you explain maybe for people who don't know really what the difference is? Can you explain what working on tools and tech involves and why people maybe don't know as much about that? I would say that if you're going to look in terms of like tools programming, or there are also other supporting forms of programming. So I spent a lot of time in DevOps as well. You are basically working on programs or systems or anything that will help support the team make the actual game. So sometimes you are just making a program to be like, oh, I noticed that when you have to do localization, you have to go through all of these long manual steps that nobody really wants to do. And it's time consuming. You really want to be doing something more fun. Let's make a system that will automate this entire setup in a button press. I think the more time you spend in the industry, I think the more inclined you might be to maybe give that side of things a go because you do have some other projects under your belt, or you've kind of seen how development has gone, you're like, I really think we could just improve this, or we could just speed this up. And that part of you as a programmer that says, I could just improve this thing if we just had a bit of time to work on it. I think it definitely grows in you the, the more and more time you spend on projects. So your role on Murder by Numbers then was kind of different from the tool side of things. What did your role on the game entail? <laughs> So for the first part of Murder by Numbers, I was the only programmer. Um, <laughs> so I want to say everything. <laughs> so I guess for a bit of context, just before I had started Murder by Numbers, I was pretty heavy in kind of DevOps. Mediatonic didn't really have an engineer looking into that at the time. As an extension of tools, I said, hey, this is a pain point and I think I can fix it. So I was very heavily involved, but I was the only full-time person doing it. And so when I moved on to murder by numbers that I kind of had a transition period where I was part doing DevOps and part starting up with murder by numbers. So initially I was doing anything that would free up the rest of the team to be able to do their job and kind of like just stay ahead. So for me initially it was setting up the visual novel system. Did you have to do that from scratch or did you base it on other visual novels? So I think the first thing I did was to kind of look into a few potential options. I thought this is the one part of the game that would actually be easiest to kind of get some supporting tools for. Most importantly, Mediatonic had already released Hatter for Boyfriend. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> I could probably get some stuff from here. So I catch up with some of the devs who worked on Hatterful. And I'm just like, okay, so there's this new project, it's murdered by numbers, I explain some stuff to them, like, yeah, it would be great if I could have a look at Hatterfall and, you know, see if there's any stuff I could take. And they just turned to me deadpans like, no, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and to a certain extent, I maybe expected something along these lines, if nothing else, because of how much older Hatterfall was. And so you're just like, okay, we, we have kind of progressed. But it was very interesting to kind of like eventually go through the project and to kind of have other devs talk about it and be like, yeah, well, when we made that game, 
there was a lot of stuff where like we were kind of working to deadlines and we had to get this done quickly. And so a lot of it is very bespoke to that particular game. And as a result would be a bit difficult to have to take out for, for something entirely new. So it actually kind of gave me one of the first things I was looking at for Murder by Numbers to be like, okay, if we're going to do this, it would be nice to set it up in such a way where it was reusable. You know, you have to think long-term, assume success, Murder by Numbers 2 one day. <laughs> it's hoping. In the end, I even though I didn't work from that project, I did find another third-party framework called Yarn Spinner. It is a visual novel kind of engine and it kind of did the core stuff very well. And it was expandable. And then for me, I thought that was perfect. So out of the box, it only really gave us, hey, if you write a script in this certain way, then it will produce that text box on screen and it will print out text and you can click through it. That's like the core basic stuff. And then I would expand on it to say, okay, well, now I want you to handle showing characters, hiding them, sliding across the screen, that's adding some emotions, some screen flashing. And all of these features I was building on top was built on top of Yarn Spinner. And it meant that our designer and writer could still write it in the initial script. (laughs) So we have long screenplay-esque scripts that describe (laughs) all of our cutscenes. And it's really fun to just kind of go back and be like, wow, this is is the core of your game. (laughs) So how did your day-to-day work change over the course of the project then? So at the beginning, you know, you're obviously coming up with this visual novel system and trying to figure that out. But presumably, you know, as you got closer to the end, you were working on different things. So I kind of had a combination of time between me still doing some DevOps and me working on the project. And then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, the stuff that I was working on was just to kind of like make sure that the designer and the writer had had enough to move forward with. And then I got to this much safer period where I stepped away from a lot of the DevOps stuff and I was just like on Murder by Numbers full time. And that was so much more freeing. Like 100% of my time was just spent programming, implementing features, talking to the rest of the team to kind of see how we'd work this stuff out or just to fine tune some details. And That was a wonderful, wonderful period. Not going to lie, it was fantastic. And everything that I would do is this, again, the best bit about being a programmer. I would be able to immediately see some some difference in the actual like Unity engine editor. And it's just a wonderful feeling to like step away after a couple of days, a week, a month, and like look back on all of the changes that you've kind of been making. And then towards the end of the development, sadly, that dies down a little bit more. <laughs> so stepping into the lead position a bit more, as the project starts to evolve, the team starts to grow and what's actually required also starts to shift a little bit more. So rather than spending 100% of my time programming, I was also spending some time in meetings with QA to talk about you know, how we were doing on bugs. I was also talking to artists and trying to get their like artwork into the engine because again, at the time I would have been the only programmer at that point, talking to design about specs, talking to production about how much time we had left and what else we could put in. And at that point it was like, okay, this is, this is a fair amount of my time. I think I remember talking to production about it because, of course, they had worked on other projects and they had spoken to leads before. And in the end, we kind of came to this idea that I would just try and split my time 50-50 because I was spending 80 to 90% of my time kind of in those meetings, having those conversations and kind of unblocking everybody else. But we managed to shift it slightly so that I would maybe spend half of my day 
unblocking other people, being in those meetings, having those decisions, and then the other half of my time going back to programming, making some more progress on that front. Does that feel like inevitable for the industry? Like the only way that you're going to get promoted and get more prestige and more, you know, money is by taking on a leadership position and kind of saying goodbye to the reason that you got into the industry in the first place? So I think that's a difficult one that the industry is currently struggling with. I've definitely heard stories of programmers in particular who have wanted a promotion or have kind of wanted a higher salary, therefore have kind of gone down that route, become a manager, and then realise that that isn't necessarily the kind of work they want to do. And I think it's something that the industry is still trying to deal with. And I feel as though, especially when we kind of have performance reviews, it's incredibly important to acknowledge people who, for example, are still programmers, don't want to do that progression because they understand that this is what they want to do. And if your company doesn't offer a progression that helps them, that you're almost at least acknowledging their work and compensating them for it. Like Mm. a lot of people who are in that position even though you don't see their progression into managing situations, they're still there doing a fantastic job getting your game ran. And I think it's a shame that sometimes they get forgotten about. There is definitely room for us to tweak our performance review system or to make some roles that I think better suit those people. So when it comes to the stuff that you really enjoyed, your kind of the actual programming on the game and seeing your work, you know, in Unity, how much of that had to do with the nonogram puzzles that are kind of the, the key part of this game? <laughs> Did you have much involvement with those? Oh, the, <laughs> where, where do I start with the nonogram puzzles? <laughs> so a lot of the features in the game are basically defined by design. And maybe I'll come back with a few tweaks or compromises. But yeah, that's generally how they've been implemented going forward. I knew from the start that it would be nonograms. I was very excited about that because it's such a like core computer science style problem. <laughs> and it just really kind of hits like that nerd in you that says, oh yeah, I would really love to tackle that problem and figure out how to make a solver. And also for the sake of games, it's how do I make a performance solver mm. so that it's not just going to like die a slow and horrible death when we put it onto say, a Switch rather than a super high-end brand new PC. So admittedly, again, I was unblocking some other people to get to this point. But once I finally got to do the nonogram stuff, I I think I maybe like slinked away for a little while. Like I definitely had my headphones on uh, a lot more often during that time. (laughs) Because I'm just like, ah, I've, I've already got all the specs around it. Like I know how this should visually look and some of the feedback. But now I just sit here and I figure out this problem. And it was a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah, out of my experience, there haven't been a ton of times where I've just been able to sit down with a problem like that. And yeah, it was good fun, at least for me. I know for some people that's probably hell. <laughs> <laughs> what was the biggest challenge that you faced working on the game? Biggest challenge? Okay, so I I guess in terms of the biggest challenge, I, I, I maybe end up going down two routes for it. So on the one hand having to jump from doing DevOps, so not really working on games at all, to having that responsibility of, oh, you'll be working on this game and initially being told that that you'll be doing all of this (laughs) meant that it was a bit of a challenge for me to readjust to say, okay, I'm now going to be completely on the gameplay side of things and then shift to be like, oh, you still have that same weight and that same amount of work, but you must also go through all of these meetings and be this point of contact and that connection. 
So it was quite challenging for me to both do the jump into games and then do the jump into lead of games Mm -hmm. (laughs) within the span of one project. Looking back on it, it was very exciting. And I learned some really valuable things and I'm feels weird to toot my own porn on a podcast, but I was almost impressed with myself at the end of it. But during it, all I could think of was like, am I doing this right? Is this how it works? Is this game dev? (laughs) (laughs) What about the kind of hardest programming challenge that you faced? The hardest programming challenge was a hundred percent having to do the nonogram solver. And that's because before going into this, I had never solved the nonogram. (gasps) The height of scandal. (laughs) Only on Talking Simulator. (laughs) Amazing. How did you feel when you finally got it cracked? Was it like one moment where it finally all worked or was it like slow iteration? It was more like one moment where it looked like it worked. And then me spending a week testing and figuring out if it actually worked. (laughs) (laughs) I guess having a person who'd never solved a nonogram before working on it was probably ideal, actually. You were probably the perfect guinea pig. I was the perfect guinea pig at the start. (laughs) But then when I sat down and said, yes, I'm going to write the nonogram puzzle for this, you suddenly walk out of it and you basically feel enlightened. There was definitely a moment where I was like, okay, I I feel as though I'm getting good at nonograms. I've kind of play-tested enough of these levels and I feel as though I have like some good internal makeshift solutions. You know, everybody who's who's kind of like new to these kind of games, just like, oh, okay, I understand the rules. I've sort of figured out my own way of doing it. And you don't really think about whether it's that fast or if it always works. You're just like, I have a system. But then having to jump into like, oh, I actually need to write a solver for nonograms. And because we have our hint system, So if the computer thinks that there is something that you could fill in that you haven't, it will Mm. kind of like change the color of the line. And that's fantastic for people who are just trying to learn or just generally prefer having a bit more help. It's a feature that is pretty common that a lot of people use, but it means that I needed to write a solver that was generally smarter than most people kind of solving this line. Because if it wasn't, people would be like, oh, well, I think I've missed this thing. But the colour didn't change, so it's obviously not that helpful, right? At the time, I ended up looking into papers. I think there was a lot of stuff online written by Dr. Stephen Simpson, and they kind of go into details to be like, ah, well, there is a complete way for you to solve a nonogram line that is kind of like brute force and basically just looks at all of the possible solutions and it's very slow and it's bulky but it will get everything you need there's also the fast solution that says okay we're just gonna look at everything on the left hand side and then push everything to the right hand side see where it overlaps and that's probably going to help you out we may not get everything but that's a lot faster than looking at every possible solution we're just looking at two What we ended up implementing is the fast complete system, which is kind of a combination of both. We end up starting from the left hand side and then use a shifting system to kind of gauge how much of the line we still need to complete. And that, as far as I can tell, has done wonders. I I generally have to go off of the review system and nobody has yet said, oh, yeah, that hint system was just terrible. It was too easy. It was too hard. It's like, no, I think we did it. There there is also part of me that is just relatively lucky uh, over the fact that I did manage to find something like this. There is the scenario where none of this would have been public at all. And I would have had to have literally figured it all out from scratch. Which again, even though I say it, there's a part of me in the back of my brain that says, oh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) (laughs) 
And presumably you had to kind of go down that route because you needed something that would be performant, right? So that would work on something like the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, it was for us the best combination of being smart enough to actually be helpful, but fast enough to be able to to work on like the Switch. <laughs> Although fun fact, or I guess podcast confession... <laughs> The way that I initially implemented it, because I was using a recursive function, mm-hmm. which is basically just like a, a function call that is calling itself until a certain condition is met. And I implemented it that way because it sort of made sense to me that like that was the way it was sort of described in these notes. And so I was like, okay, I can translate that almost one-to-one with code. That did have some problems on Switch. I, <laughs> I maybe screwed up a little bit. But it was okay. We we managed to find it and remedy it. Move to an iterative solution. It wasn't too bad. But there is like this gut dropping feeling where you're just like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure this should be fine on a lower end device. It should be fine on Switch. And then just having somebody just be like, oh, I think it's frozen. <gasps> no, no, it can't be. <laughs> How is this? And then that'd be the next couple of days of your work life. <laughs> How about the work that you did that kind of directly affected other members of the team in other disciplines? So, for instance, what kind of work did you end up doing for the benefit of the artists, for example? Like, what did they require from you and how did you go about it? So for our artists, I think at the time we were only getting part-time artists, which again, like it was absolutely fantastic to have them join the team, but it meant that they, for example, didn't necessarily have time to get their art from, say, Photoshop into the Unity engine and to actually set it up and look a particular way, especially because, you know, they would be jumping between two projects. So there was a time where I was going to have to do this manually, but yonks ago, before I joined Murder by Numbers and I was part of the tools team, this was even before DevOps, we had worked on a tool that would basically export uh, Photoshop files into an intermediary format that kind of said, oh, you are this particular layer in this particular position. And then we would have a second tool on the Unity side to say, hey, I want you to read all of that data and turn it into a game scene in Unity. And this was developed to kind of help avoid an issue where artists would make this beautifully laid out scene. And then a programmer would try and put it into Unity, do the best job they could, but you never know, it might be off by a few pixels. And especially when you're making a game that is already live or has a pass by an external stakeholder, they may be a bit more crucial about those few pixels. And it's a bit annoying to have to go through a lot of that back and forth to have it tweaked. So it was a really useful tool for us to have. It felt quite nice for me to be able to like bring it back out for the sake of this project. Yeah, it definitely saved us some time. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard you talk before about the character markup tool as well. Is that something you're particularly proud of? Uh, Yeah, I I was always really glad when they said, okay, well, we want to add a bit more animation into the actual like scene. So why don't we have all of these little emotions, uh, emotion kind of symbols? So, you know, maybe you'd get that teardrop go down the face or you get like a little anger symbol. And it was fantastic to be like, yeah, that is a great idea. I love it. But then to realize, oh, we have characters of a variety of different heights. <laughs> we we may need to tweak this. And it's not just characters of different heights. Every character has their own set of poses, which may be changed on the level. So rather than having to manually set that for each individual case, because even just saying that, it just 
uh, it just kind of sounds dirty. I ended up making a custom tool that said, okay, we're just going to show you for this given character. You can quickly flick through whatever poses they have and you can just set some default positions and maybe tweak them and just save it out once done significantly quicker kind of iteration. And yeah, it was quite nice to be able to throw that over to the design team and writing team to be like, this is yours. Have fun. (laughs) It may break. Let me know. I'm just on the other side of the desk, but (laughs) it should hold up. What was your favorite part of working on the game? The first one is going to be how incredible it was working with the Murder by Numbers team. For those working on it full time, we kind of basically just had one island of desks. We didn't take up that much space and it was just a fun environment to work in. We kind of had like me as a programmer sitting on the desk and then across from me, the writer, and then just next to that, our designer. And it was just so fun and tightly knit. And occasionally we just have jokes and that kind of thing. It almost felt like we were in our own little like studio world for the longest time. And occasionally when we had other people like join us part-time from other teams, they would just kind of like wander up to our side of the office and we'd be like, oh yeah, we have you for a day. That's so great. Here is a ton of work, but it's so great. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was fantastic being able to work with all those people and so incredibly talented. And yeah, I kind of miss our little island desk. So given that that was my first point, (laughs) and I know that nothing should theoretically be better (laughs) than the team that made the game. But I kid you not, but Murder by Numbers does have a physical edition. And that made me so happy. And I was so excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if Mediatonic, if any of our other games have had physical editions before. This is huge and incredible. And oh my gosh, I love the artwork and just to have a case. And I got so excited about it. And everybody on the team, we were all meant to be getting a copy of this. But sadly, lockdown happened. Mm. And so getting into the office to be able to pick it up was very difficult. I literally only got my physical copy a couple of days ago. (gasps) And so I picked it up. I was joking with some friends on stream. And I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, what? I could do a live unboxing. And it was meant to be a bit of a lighthearted, you know, thing. But then I got like super excited to be like, oh, my gosh. The quality of this art book is just incredible. (laughs) And oh my gosh, I remember having to take, like having to do that screenshot and that's what the game used to look like. And Scout, Scout used to not have arms. (gasps) There was a full debate about this. I know. (laughs) And uh, then I picked up the physical copy of the game. And that's something about just like having it in your hands that at this point, the game had been out for a little while and I knew the collector's edition existed and I, I knew there was a copy for me in the office. But yeah, just to be able to physically hold this game and be like, this is something people can buy that I have helped make and create and was built with love and incredible skill. And oh, it was just such a wonderful feeling to have something you could physically hold. Just beautiful. Literally ever since I I was a child in in kind of stereotypical fashion, (laughs) (laughs) I always wanted to release a game that I had a heavy hand programming in, that I was passionate about, that I would be proud to show other people about. And Murder by Numbers just kind of hits that on on every level. It was, gosh, again, toot my own horn. It was a wonderful lifetime achievement. Just, just going <laughs> to say it. <laughs> One of the things I was super proud about is the fact that I kind of had to say about the diversity of the cast. Honor was originally Caucasian. <laughs> So, so this was this was incredibly early days. Like, I don't even think we had had a drawing of Honor yet. We were just sending over some reference material to Moa, 
And our lead designer, Ed, he had basically like shown me a lot of this stuff to kind of like give me an idea of like the 90s vibe we were going with. And admittedly, at this point, I had very little confidence just in general. But I was like, you know what? It's not very often that Mediatonic have had like its own IP. And Ed, bless him, he had done the best thing and was open. And he said, look, if there's anything that you kind of want to talk about or pitch about the game or to talk about it, like I know I'm the designer and and you're the programmer, but you know, we're kind of open to all opinions. And for me, that was the key. (laughs) So after working up some courage to be like, I'm not sure how to ask about this or how I'm going to phrase this, (laughs) I very sheepishly just kind of bring it up and it's just like, "Uh, so I know we don't have that much like say in the characters usually, but any any chance we could switch up the diversity for our main character? And I don't know why I was so so sheepish about it. I think I just assumed that this is a difficult thing to do because not enough places do it. Turns out this is very easy. You just need to have somebody who is willing to listen and make the change, which would have been Ed, somebody who's willing to pipe up, which was me, and just to have that combination relatively early on in development. And like it was it was easy. What's more, I never had to mention it again, but we had a diverse cast because it had been brought up once and now the idea was there and yeah, it just kind of ran with it. But as somebody who struggles to like do any hot Halloween dress up for like, oh I want to I want to do some dress up for a character in the games industry that looks like me and has so few options not only being able to kind of influence the cast for this game, but this game in particular that has like such a high level for style. That was just like, oh, if, if, I, if I'd contributed nothing else to the game, that, that would have been a huge win for me. But, you know, also did all that programming. <laughs> See games industry, it really is that easy. Really is that easy. <laughs> what do you think you've learned from the experience of making Murder by Numbers? Gosh, what haven't I learned? <laughs> <laughs> okay, one very hard lesson I learned. <laughs> and I'm, but I think I should probably put that out there as a PSA to some of the other programmers who may be in my position. So when you're kind of making a game like this or any game as a programmer, sometimes you just have to fill in the gaps. You don't have the assets yet. And so you kind of do what is lovingly nicknamed programmer art, which is stuff that maybe doesn't look the best, but it's a prototype for now until it gets the assets. You know, it will get the job done. For me, I was maybe a bit ambitious and I said, oh, yeah, but we may not get an artist till much further down the line because we were sort of getting people part time. So there are a few things where I'm like, oh yeah, I can maybe add in this transition or I could like make shift an asset this way. And, you know, I I filled in some gaps. But because it wasn't very clearly programmer art, some of it is still in the game. (gasps) And there is part of me where I talk to people and I go, oh, are you not proud that you managed to get like your your art, your animation or transition into the game. Like, no, I thought it was going to be replaced. (laughs) (laughs) And so now when I play the game, there was a period where like, I I really struggled looking at like the bits that I had made because I'm just like, I thought somebody was going to, was going to swap them out, would have time to change this. (laughs) Apparently nobody else has like really noticed or paid too much attention to it. But for me, it's like all I could see for the first couple of times of me playing this game again. Oh, no. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, like having played through the whole game, there was no point at which I looked at something and thought that doesn't look like it belongs here. That doesn't look like it's the final copy. It all looks consistent to me. So. (laughs) (laughs) 
how about if you ended up working on a sequel? I know you're no longer at Mediatonic, but you know, if you did for some reason have the chance to work on Murder by Numbers 2, what would you want to change about it? So one of the things that we added in Murder by Numbers was kind of like a scoring system. Mm-hmm. And I think we had some issues because for a lot of people, it wasn't immediately clear about how the scoring system worked. Like at the end of the puzzle, it would pop up and numbers would go up and that's great. I think for people initially, because we always included your detective rank Mm -hmm. and on the offset, it wasn't totally clear as to if your detective rank was for that one particular puzzle or if it was for your entire case. And then we have had some issues where people then didn't realize that your detective rank would link to bonus puzzles, which may lead to some like extra content about scouts. And so there are some people who, who, for example, were kind of skipping some puzzles. You don't actually need to solve everything. But then realizing that there was some content locked off for them later on if they didn't do all of that, which controversially, I think was like maybe a bit of a shame. I feel as though if we were to kind of go through it again, just to make the scoring system a bit clearer, but to also maybe have some separation between like, yes, there's bonus content, but it's only just associated with with bonus puzzles or there's kind of like a nicer way that you're not completely locked out of it because you forgot to pick up the toothbrush (laughs) in the lab at like this particular time in the game. So you had a really great time working on this game, it sounds like for the most part. And obviously, you know, it came to an end, the game came out, it did really well. How did you decide when to move on from Mediatonic? So after Murder by Numbers, it kind of released and it was great and it was a wonderful feeling. And again, like I said, it it was almost like a peak for me. And then I kind of went back to my old work (laughs) and it was definitely a bit of a struggle. I think I think I actually spent three months in an interim project. So occasionally I would just kind of be put onto a team to help them out and Yeah, that was sort of nice. It was sadly for a game that didn't get released. But once I got back onto the central team, it it kind of felt different in that sense of I've been away for so long, but so little has changed. Mm. But the rest of the studio has changed and we almost need to play catch up at this point. But I also kind of had that problem of, well, I'm no longer working on a game and kind of spending some time kind of resolving with myself whether that was okay. And admittedly, I actually decided that it was okay for me to to not necessarily be working on a game, but I did boil down to some more core stuff. Like I really need to be learning something new. I think that's something that drives a lot of programmers because by its very nature, there is always so much more new stuff that you could be learning, like whether you want to be an expert in a particular tool or whether you just want to learn some more language or just to have something more broad. There is always something new to learn. And having to go back to my old stuff and realizing that there wasn't really any room for me to grow or to learn new stuff, mm-hmm. it got to the point where it was repetitive. I wasn't really learning anything new and yeah, if I'm being honest, I kind of missed working with a small team on that island, you know, having something that was a bit more local and just in general fun. So I sadly, with a heavy heart, because the people at Mediatonic are fantastic. So it took a lot. But in the end, I decided I should try and find some work somewhere else. And you start tomorrow. And I start tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) 
Murder by Numbers is available on PC and Nintendo Switch. If you listen to this episode on the day it comes out, you've just about got time to grab it at half price on Steam, but I think it's more than worth the price tag. This was one of my favorite games of 2020, played bit by bit each night in bed on my Nintendo Switch to help me wind down during a stressful year. Liz doesn't tweet much, but you can find her on Twitter at L-I-Z-B-E-T-H-W-R-I-G-H-T. I'm at Jerrica Weber, and the podcast is at Talking Sim Pod. You can also email us at talkingsimulatorpod at gmail.com, though if you have nice things to say about the show, I'd also appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at J-A-Z-Z-M-I-C-K-L-E. Talking Simulator is mixed by Lemington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at D-A-N-C-P-A-R-K-E-S. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. I was basically just listening to the soundtrack for the game before we started just to kind of get myself hyped and ready for this. And I obviously got way too distracted and was not paying attention to Zoom. <laughs> Late to the interview because you were listening to the soundtrack of the game that you were working on. Amazing. Yeah, feels feels like a legit reason. <laughs> <laughs>